Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And I've got an arrhythmia going on because I couldn't get connected to the old internet, which... Uh, oh. Is a problem these days, especially if you're trying to have a podcast. So it's all on me, and I apologize to the guests and to STS Nation. And I'm going off of my hotspot, so if we disappear, you'll know why, but hopefully we won't. Um, of course, it is uh, the fifth week of this trial, day 22 to be specific. And uh, it is the trial, uh, as you all know by now, but I'd like to recap for new viewers of the so-called Doomsday Mom. It is the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother, a self-proclaimed devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who clearly veered way off course and became involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her own children. And as uh, guest today, we've got the man in the vest. I love it. Dave Leroy. He's a trial lawyer with five decades of experience. Uh, he served as Ada County Prosecuting Attorney, where this trial is going on, and Idaho Attorney General and was also Lieutenant Governor of Idaho, uh, so he's got quite the resume, followed by Tara Malik with one of the nicer ba- backdrops in the business. I love the, uh, the faux Ivy-ish look going on. She is an Idaho licensed attorney practicing in state and federal court uh, in business and commercial litigation, and she has experience in both civil and criminal law. And then, of course, Josh Ritter a friend of the show, named the 2015 Outstanding Prosecutor of the Year by the Association of Deputy District Attorneys. He is a partner at El Dabe Ritter Trial Lawyers, and he hosts True Crime Daily, The Sidebar, uh, a legit show. Check it out, True Crime Daily, The Sidebar. A couple of quick programming notes. Please follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. Uh, We are at Podcast STS. You can uh, support us at Patreon or uh, follow us and become YouTube members. Uh, Without further ado, by the way, there will be a Patreon and YouTube member event with my lovely mother, and uh, it will be held on May 18th. We will uh, let you know the time uh, precisely once we get a little bit closer. Uh, I'm looking at my phone to make sure my battery doesn't die, because then we will all be off the screen in one fell swoop. So, um. Dave Leroy, to you, I saw this tweet and it caught my attention. Um, And this, um, pardon me, I I don't remember his name, but he is a pundit on Court TV and a well-known criminal defense attorney. And he says in the tweet, I'll say it again. The fact that Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell get separate trials is an atrocity. And don't get me started on her quote unquote religion. Do you think these cases, because uh, Chad had a hearing, which we'll get to, should they have been severed in the first place? Well, you can always argue that back and forth, uh, but it's difficult, of course, for the prosecutor uh, to prove a conspiracy when both parties aren't in the room. On the other hand, uh, we're seeing a perfectly good example of why prosecutors uh, perhaps especially the prosecutor of the year, love to charge conspiracies. <laughs> you can reach back in time. You can reach back across uh, state lines. You can put in people who have uh, 
uh, proved to be dead, and but were apparently major actors, arguing that they were part of a common scheme, design, or plan, and directed by somebody to do something. So it may, in my view, also have been a, a disadvantage uh, to the prosecutor to have separate trials, because it always raises the possibility that these single defendants will point the finger the other direction uh, and say, the other person not in the courtroom must have done something. It certainly wasn't me. Uh, that's somewhat precluded when you have joint trials. But so far, it has not been a disadvantage to the prosecution. And it has not been a great advantage yet, at least, to the defense. And uh, Josh, as a former prosecutor of the year, what's your perspective from uh, state side? Yeah, I agree with Dave. Um, I except I think it might be some presenting some problems for the prosecution. I, I Listen, I think they have a strong case, but I think it would have been so much easier for them to have uh, Chad sitting next to her as all of this was going on, because they've done a really good job of connecting Chad and Alex to these murders. Uh, and I think they have a sound theory as far as conspiracy go of uh, goes of connecting Lori Vallow to these murders, but it would have been, um, I think easier for them if they're pointing over towards, you know, the defendant side of the, of the, of the desk there. And both defendants are sitting there as they're talking about this case. And as they're talking about their closing arguments, especially as, as it relates to Tammy Daybell, because now, you know, it, I can see the connection and I can see the motive and I can see the consciousness of guilt when it comes to the children. And they even have now forensic evidence and that hair that was recovered, but Connecting here in their conspiracy to Tammy Dable becomes even one step more tenuous to me that might prove difficult for them. They might be able to wrap this all up in closing argument, but had they both been sitting there in the courtroom, I think it just, if not for optics alone, may have made it easier for the prosecution. And uh, Stephanie writes, is anybody else as shocked as I am to find out that Melanie, they call her Melanie Niece, uh, Lori's niece and uh, Ian are still married. So many red flags there. Uh, we're going to get to that in a moment. But uh, Tara, I wanted you to weigh in as well on this uh, severing or not severing uh, of the uh, cases. I, I thought it was an interesting uh, point that this gentleman made on Twitter. It is a really interesting point. And, um, you know, there's there's pros and some cons to the situation. Um, you know, I agree with uh, Josh and Dave on this. It's we call it the empty chair defense when someone isn't there and you're in a case and you go, Hey, it wasn't me. It was somebody that's not in this room. It's the empty chair. And so um, that can be effective. Um, and, you know, for the prosecution, it's a lot easier when you're just presenting one case, one trial, one time, instead of having to basically do it over again. The other thing that it does is Chad's uh, attorney is, watching and in the room. So he gets kind of a preview of what the prosecution's case is going to look like against Chad. And so he's got a little bit of an edge and an advantage here because he can start, you know, lining up what he wants to do in his strategy to kind of overcome um, some of these themes and motives that the prosecution is putting forward as well and have a little bit extra time to think about how he's going to poke more holes and and see, you know, what Lori's attorneys are doing and what looks like it's successful and what isn't successful in his case. And uh, SGS Nation, you got an amazing panel tonight. You've got the former lieutenant governor of the great state of Idaho and the attorney general. So uh, 
get us your STS Nation questions, and hopefully my cell phone uh, power uh, stays rearing and continuing uh, to be ready to go. Uh, today, uh, almost uh, as we speak, it may have just ended, but there was actually a hearing for uh, Chad Daybell after court today, uh, his own hearing, and there was a lot of drama earlier in the day. Um, I was following good Lori Hellis, who's going to be writing a book about this entire case. And uh, earlier this morning, she caught my attention because she says, we still have not been able to sort out the hearings that are scheduled for today and tomorrow. According to the court database, there is a hearing scheduled today at 345 local time, which was, you know, just a little over 45 minutes ago, um, I believe. And uh, Chad is, is supposed to appear by Zoom, she said. I presume this is to set a new trial date, but we also found this on the court's website, which showed another hearing. So then there was all kinds of drama. Maybe Chad was going to, uh, uh, you know, his lawyer was going to try to some some sort of plea agreement. Uh, no one knew what was going on. Turns out it was just a regular case hearing. Uh, so, Dave, uh, John Pryor uh, who is Chad Daybell's attorney, who's been in, in the courtroom, uh, was at this hearing uh, when the regular trial finished up today. And uh, he said to uh, the judge that he predicts the trial will take 10 to 12 weeks, including time to pick the jury, uh, time for the prosecutors and defense in the mitigation phase. So 10 to 12 weeks for all of that. And he's asking the judge to hold the trial uh, basically one year from now, uh, May 24th. Does any of this stand out to you? Well, John Pryor is an acquaintance of mine. He practices law here in Ada County, Idaho, Boise area. And uh, he has consistently said through the entirety of this uh, trial campaign that he is not yet prepared, that he needs more time. Uh, that's the principal reason that these two trials were ultimately separated after having been set jointly uh, for this time period initially. So I, I'm not surprised that John uh, continues to advocate for additional delay. Uh, I'm a little surprised that uh, he uh, is suggesting that a year from now is the right number with his uh, client being incarcerated. Uh, but uh, ultimately the client is the person who is consulted about how speedy a speedy trial should be. So I'm presuming that uh, the lawyer and the client are in accord uh, and presuming that the judge thinks there's some reason to bump this back again from uh, the setting they tentatively had for this fall. Uh, I suppose that could happen, but I'd be surprised if the judge is inclined to do that, uh, assuming that he has not already ruled on that motion uh, without some additional strong suggestions as to what it is that compels an additional delay. And in addition, as Tara said, uh, the defense uh, for Chad is getting huge advantages by hearing the trial play out uh, with this conspiracy overtone that wraps everybody in to start with. So uh, John should be uh, ready to go as soon as possible. If he says it's a year, he and his client have suggested that. But I'm, I think the judge might be modestly disinclined to jump on that simply because they requested. I love the way uh, Dave says that modestly disinclined uh, is a way of saying, get the hell out of here. Uh, Tara, uh, to you, does anything, uh, I mean, you know, Ada County really well, 10 to 12 weeks would be double, uh, if not more than where we're at now. Is that because there will likely be the death penalty 
uh, on the table here? And uh, do you think he'll be granted this timeline, uh, which Dave thinks to seem that the judge will tell him to buzz off? But uh, do you think it will take a full year before we see Chad Daybell's trial? Well, I'm not sure whether we're going to, whether the judge is going to be inclined to push it all the way out a full year. You know, the the death penalty is on the table, so it adds a different um, dimension to Chad's case that Lori's case did not have. Uh, because of the death penalty being on the table, there's going to be a part two of the trial. So they'll go through the first uh, part of the trial where they'll put on evidence regarding the conspiracy, the allegations and the uh, information or complaint. And then if he's found guilty, they'll go into a part two phase where they're, um, the death penalty is on the table and they'll have to go through that process. Um, you know, it's it's definitely to the benefit of uh, generally uh, defense for a longer delay. Um, and, you know, as a practical matter, memories change over time. Witnesses will forget things. They'll forget details. Uh, the longer the delay between their testimony at, you know, for instance, grand jury or any sort of preliminary motions to the time of trial uh, is helpful because every time you testify, there's a record of it. So uh, delay is usually pretty favorable to the defense. Um, so I'm not surprised that they're wanting to push this out longer and longer. Uh, now, they also have a right to be fully prepared for a trial or reasonably prepared for a trial. And so it's going to depend on how the attorney here frames the reasons that he needs all of this time and needs this to be pushed out another year. Uh, Josh, to you, I know you've been following the case very closely. Stephanie asks, I don't understand why Melanie's not in jail for her role in Brandon's attempted murder. Melanie, of course, a niece, Brandon Boudreaux, uh, her ex-husband. Uh, there was this attempt on his life. Uh, I'm assuming because, um, you know, law enforcement didn't charge her. Um, but what, what's your take on this question? Because it's kind of interesting. And she, by the way, there was a thought she was going to testify today. Uh, it did not happen. And we heard in addition to that, um, that she left Idaho. So it doesn't sound like she's going to be uh, providing testimony anytime soon. But to this question, uh, your thoughts? I'm embarrassed to say that I have to kind of punt on this question because I have been following it, but I'm not quite sure on this this issue. So I I, I apologize to to not be prepared on that question there. But if yeah. if anybody can fill me in on it, uh, I, I'm I'm happy to jump in with my thoughts. We 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 love honesty. I I <laughs> I will tell you that um you know there's this. When it, when it popped up at the bottom, I said, I hope he doesn't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Do either of you two uh, care to take that about why Melanie hasn't been charged in this? I'm unaware of that evidence, but I know Tara knows it all. No, I don't. So I'm hunting <laughs> as well. I, well. I feel like this is like roulette. <laughs> that, that's the uh, that, that's the that's the question of the day. Then you have stumped the best guess. So uh, you will you will get a special uh, you will get a special uh, reward. I'm reading Elizabeth's comment here. Hi, SCS second live show. Love the guests and the host. One of my favorite. Hello, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, so by the way, on a, a little bit more serious note here today, I found out uh, is in fact Tammy Daybell's birthday. I just wanted to take a moment. Uh, she would have turned. 53 years old, exactly my age right now. Uh, she was uh, born May 4th, 1970, uh, the mother of five children and uh, was asphyxiated and 
is no longer with us. The family is asking, and I put this into the summary already, uh, there is something called the Tammy Daybell Foundation, and I put the link uh, on the website. But, uh, you know, Dave, you've been in the courtroom and defended countless defendants. Um, you've had higher positions within the state. Uh, it, it gets to a point where sometimes we do forget about the victims because everyone's focused on the drama, uh, the drama of the trial. Um, how important is it to always keep the focus on those who are affected the most by these uh, cases? Well, I'd say as compared to the time when I was prosecuting in the 70s uh, and the 80s, uh, we now, by virtue of statutes and social sensitivity, have come a long, long way to helping victims be fully advised about what's going on in cases, participating, the right to tell the judge uh, before sentencing uh, of their feelings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so all things being equal, I think the, vic the victims generally get a fair shake right now in terms of the operation of the system. Of course, that's not always true during the investigation stage when the police must remain silent uh, for purposes of strategic advantage. Uh, it's not always the case, of course, during a trial when things become uh, disjointed or problematic or highly emotional in a courtroom. But for the most part, and I think it's probably true here in Ada County with uh, the victims' families, uh, to the extent that we're able to supply Ada County assistance. We have a victim witness coordinator and victim support people who go to court with victims on a regular basis and sit with them during any and all phases of a significant felony proceeding. So we try to take care of victims, uh, though obviously they're on an emotional coaster ride from moment one when they're victimized in the crime. And uh, we're thinking, of course, of Larry and Kay Woodcock. Uh, Kay was coming into the chat room before she uh, was uh, going to court. I'm not sure if she was actually in the courtroom today. If anyone knows and wants to let me know, uh, it'd be good to know that information. Uh, 2007 whistleblower writes, Chad is going to point the finger at Lori, uh, Josh, but he can't get out of the fact that his role was the grave digger for the kids uh, that who didn't like him much. Um, is this an accurate assessment? As reminded me when Dave said something uh, about severing the trials, I'm still stunned, and we'll get back to this question, but I'm still stunned that the defense uh, hasn't kind of uh, pointed the finger more at Alex Cox, who's an easy target because he's no longer on planet Earth uh, they haven't made that case at all. Granted, they haven't presented their defense yet, but it doesn't look like we're even headed that way. I know I asked two completely different things, but let's start with this question, and then we can get to the uh, Alex Cox point afterwards. Yeah, I do agree with it. I think that 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 is going to probably be his Chad. I'm talking about Chad Daybell's entire case is that, you know, like Tara made the, made the excellent point about an empty chair defense he's going to be pointing at everybody who's not in the courtroom as well when he has his trial. And I think, you know, to kind of dovetail into the, your, your other question, we, we thought that we saw a preview of that from the defense in this case, when they gave their opening statements, because they had talked about Alex Cox and they had talked about Chad Debo. And I thought they were going to play a more prominent role in the defense's case as far as cross-examination. And we haven't seen that materialize really. Now, I know that they still have their case to put on. I don't 
I haven't heard. I know that the the witness lists are under seal, so we're not really getting an understanding of what they're going to launch in their case. But it would be interesting if they see if they try to redirect things towards people who, quite frankly, seem to be far more um, directly connected to the murders, uh, certainly of the children. They're buried on Chad Daybell's property. You've got Alex Cox with the you know the telephone evidence kind of connecting him to all of that. And then you've got with Tammy Daybell, you know, Chad's laying right next to her, even according to his own admission when she dies. So um, being able to 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 direct the the jury's attention towards those folks, you would think would be the natural defense in this case. Now, you know, to to give them their due, the case isn't over. And like I said, they can still call witnesses and they may just wrap this all up in their closing argument, which I've seen before, where you feel like uh, you don't quite understand the defense's theory of the case, and then they kind of systematically go through points that you may have not connected in their closing argument. So time will tell. And uh, Tara, to you, um, what about this Alex Cox point? Why have we not seen them kind of running his name through the mud a little bit more uh, on, on cross, let's say, uh, when he is, you know, he is an easy target. His cell phone data shows that he was at these grave sites around the time of the murders. He, you know, he openly admits to shooting Charles Vallow in self-defense. So why are they not kind of raking him over the coals? Uh, may he rest in peace. Well, I think it is curious. Um, two things that came to mind when I was kind of contemplating the issue is one, it could be that it's just one step too close to Lori. It's her brother. Um, they may be worried here that if they throw Alex's name in this whole thing, they'll think, well, their brother and you know sister, there's a family relationship there. And that's, you know, enough to kind of muddy her as well. Some somehow tangentially. Um, but, you know, I, I he's not here. <laughs> and um, it, it seems like the easiest thing to do is to say, you know, he went rogue, he did all this bad conduct, um, and, and to distance herself from it more. So I'm not sure what the thinking is there. You know, the other part of this is, we don't know what those conversations between Lori and her attorneys are. Um, you know, sometimes a client will tell the attorney, um, the attorney will will lay out kind of the strategy and the angle that they're going at. And the, the client will say, no, I don't want you to do that. Um, and there will be a specific instruction there. So that's also a possibility that we're not the reason why we're not seeing the name is perhaps something that Lori has told or instructed her attorney um, to do or not to do. And to that point, Dave, because I was wondering this, is there any chance in hell that Chad Daybell is so in love with Lori still that he says to his counsel, to John Pryor, who you know, uh, please don't point the finger at Lori. Please don't say it was her. Um, and would the counsel, if instructed to do that, would he have to follow that order from his defendant? Well, I suppose it's always possible uh, a year from now or a few months from now that Chad will do something utterly unpredictable about uh, reaching back to adjust uh, Lori's role one way or the other. The more probable prediction would be that he makes her more involved rather than less involved. But I think one reason that we're not hearing more about Alex is because it's obvious that Alex was the principal actor here in all of these nefarious deeds, uh, most particularly 
and most provably uh, the burying of the children with his cell phone in his pocket. Uh, the reason we're not hearing more about that is it's so obvious, but what is not obvious is what's charged in the indictment and the way the language reads, uh, particularly is that uh, he was caused to do that by somebody. So what we're exploring in this trial and will be in the next is who caused him to do that? And the allegation is going to be that the conspiracy involving both of these defendants was the active agent that caused the obvious bad guy to do the bad acts. And that by causing that, these conspirators are guilty of the crime as well. Interesting. Very interesting perspective there. Uh, Josh, to you from TGQ, uh, question. Why do some, specifically murder cases, take longer than others to go to trial? And I'm glad she asked, not me, because I was embarrassed to ask that question, to be honest. But there are murder cases I feel like they're over in a matter of days. And others, uh, you just heard from uh, Chad Daybill's attorney, who says he, you know, granted that could be a death penalty case. Uh, he needs up to three months. But why such a variance when it comes to, uh, to murder trials specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, but something important to understand that in all of these cases, the clock is essentially controlled by the defense. They have a right to a speedy trial. So at, at any point, the defense could say, I want my trial. You've charged me with a crime. You have, in California, it's 60 days to bring me to trial. I expect to be sitting in court in front of 12 people in 60 days. And the prosecution has got to put that together. Now, in practice, the way it works is that these cases are very complex. There's a lot of uh, evidence to go through. You want your defense team as prepared as possible. So they're going to ask for more time and push that down the road. And especially in a case of this kind of magnitude where you're dealing with, especially in Chad's case, with the death penalty, they're going to be given a lot of deference by the court. And so if they say, I need more time, they're, they're likely going to be given more time because they the, the court is very concerned with, amongst other things, making sure that they don't create any kind of a appellate issues for the defense. And one of those could be that you you push them to trial when they were pounding their fists on the table saying that they were not ready. But something to, to understand in this case, which is another kind of wrinkle that we don't see all that often, but that that clock that I was talking about, at least as far as Lori Vallow goes, was suspended for a couple of times because her counsels declared a doubt as to her competency. And when that happens, she goes into kind of mental health care and that clock is stopped. So that's what offset the, the, the timing with these two defendants. And then you had her, when she came back from competency, was able to stand trial saying she wanted her trial immediately, is my understanding, and Chad saying he wanted to waive time. And so the prosecution, I think, out, regardless of their wishes, had this case separ separated. I, 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 I imagine it was their intention from the very beginning, and I, I think all previous court hearings were with the two of them as as co-defendants. So that's just kind of some of the things that go into why some of these cases take longer than others. I'd add a footnote to that. Uh, that's a very excellent answer about why does it take so long to get to trial. But you can also interpret this question and ask, why do some trials take much longer than others? And that, uh, I think, allows us to talk about the nature of a circumstantial case, yeah. which this is, where you have to put together little pieces of fact here and little pieces of fact there. 
none of which prove anything about the murder, but all of which collectively hang together to give a logical conclusion that something can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, it takes a good deal of time to assemble that little piece of, of evidence uh, into a fabric that uh, can be arguably proof beyond a reasonable doubt. In a case where you've got an eyewitness, a couple of witnesses, a couple of days, you've got a murder trial. But in this case, as we're seeing, a very disjointed collection of facts over a long period of time, spanning two or three states uh, with hundreds of people uh, who've touched some aspect of it, takes a good deal of time once you get to trial to prove a case. Yeah, excellent point. If this was all caught on videotape, we would not be sitting here still talking about this trial, I imagine. Probably, probably a great point there, uh, Dave. Uh, since you're, you're the you're the wise man on this panel right here, Gra Grandma Mode Two uh, writes, "Hello, listening from Southern Utah, where religious Mormon offshoots abound. I will never understand. There is a sensitivity with this trial, um, especially by those, and understandably so, in the uh, LDS Church." Uh, that, you know, they have nothing to do with Lori's insane behavior. I would just like, this is not a legal question, just your take uh, in terms of, you know, separating uh, church from church here, uh, so to speak. I mean, what Lori was involved in uh, is a very, uh, not even perverted version, but just a completely different thing than what LDS is. Uh, is that, am I correct? Well, the, the nicknames that she's been given by the media, the cult mom, the doomsday mom, obviously bear no relationship whatsoever to mainline religion, uh, LDS or any other mainline religion. Uh, while there may be some attempt by Chad to springboard his philosophy from various uh, chapters or verses or statements in the Bible, uh, it never ripens to a full expression of religion, in my view, and moving to a remote outpost in Idaho from which we're going to save 144,000 people is so relatively illogical that I don't think uh, the average viewer of this whole process uh, is going to hold that against any particular church, including the Mormon church. Uh, it's a cult, uh, it's a doomsday theory, and it's way out there. Uh, well said. Um, Abigail, I'm probably going to get us all in trouble again with this one. Uh, do we think Melanie listened to testimony on purpose to get out of testifying? She's shady. We haven't heard much from her. I don't even know if she still supports Lori or has woken up. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, obviously her, her husband was on the stand today. and We're going to get into some of his testimony and part of the day yesterday. Um, but she has headed out of Idaho. Um, as far as I know, there was nothing um, nothing funny happening, uh, no shady business from what I can tell. She might just not be uh, subpoenaed anymore. Uh, is that a possibility, Tara, that she was removed from the witness list for whatever reason? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, both sides can send out subpoena. They've got subpoena powers. Um, and sometimes, and I've certainly done it myself, you get to a certain point in your case and it takes a turn and you decide, well, I don't need this person's testimony. And so, you know, the prosecutor, or the, you know, defense attorney may pick up the phone and call and say, uh, yeah, you know, I know we issued a subpoena to you, but we actually don't need you. So we're releasing you from the subpoena. And so long as both sides didn't have her under subpoena, 
uh, or if they did, it would require both of them to release her from that subpoena. So that's a possibility. Um, I, I haven't heard about any uh, potential shadiness around that. Yeah, me neither. At the conclusion of testimony of any witness after cross-examination, redirect, recross, the judge typically asks, may this witness be excused? And in that context, uh, uh, if both sides, as Tara just suggested, express an affirmative, the witness is done. The question is why. But uh, Josh, as you can see here, uh, inquiring minds want to know, because Bobby Henson writes, why is Melanie P. allowed to just leave town while she's under subpoena with no penalty whatsoever? These people get away with everything. Uh, conspiracy theories can start to abound. But uh, as Tara just said and Dave uh, agreed with, I mean, it's possible her, she was just released on her own volition, right? Yeah, it, it's possible that either they they released the jurisdiction of that subpoena over her and said that they're no longer intending to call her, or it could be that she's under subpoena still, but they're allowing her to to leave the state or go go wherever as long as she agrees to to return, understanding that the court hold, holds jurisdiction over her, having ordered her back into court or ordered her to be on call to whoever uh, decides to bring her in on that subpoena. So that that's fairly common. I mean, you. Just so folks understand, you subpoena dozens of people sometimes for some of these cases, and you can't have the hallway filled up with witnesses waiting to testify three weeks down the line. So a lot of these people are put on, we call it putting them on call so that they understand the court holds jurisdiction over them, but it, their only obligation to return is when the prosecution or defense says that, okay, come in tomorrow. This is when we need you to testify. Laura Waldy. Tara, Joshua, and Dave, the truly holy <laughs> trinity. So you got, and now Josh owes me a beer because of this comment. Catherine Regier, discover Josh through STS. Mahalo, Joel. Um, oh. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you, STS, and thank you, Catherine. <laughs> uh, Dave, to you, uh, this judge has been levied with a lot of criticism, a ton, uh, mainly because uh, cameras are not allowed in the courtroom. People think there's no transparency. Uh, the witness list is sealed. The list goes on. Karen says the judge is trying too hard to support the defense. What do you say to that, Dave? I'm not sure you can make that case. Uh, this judge has exercised excellent control over his courtroom. Uh, the fact that we don't have a circus show inside the courtroom with cameras and uh, the kinds of things that would only further augment the sensationalism of this trial, I think, is attributable attributable to the judge and a credit to the judge. Uh, we all recall the allegations or suggestions that Judge Ito in the OJ case lost control of the courtroom. Well, that's not happening here, and I don't see any evidence that he's overbalancing his rulings or his approach to the case uh, one way or the other. He seems objective, uh, and he, like every judge, is very concerned that every objection, every argument, uh, every issue in this courtroom is an appellate issue that will go up to the Supreme Court. He's calling them straight, and I think he's calling them well. Uh, this is a question I might get some flack for, uh, Tara, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So uh, we always get a brief description of uh, Lori Vallow. Today she entered the courtroom. She's wearing white pants with black stripes, a black top with a black sweater. She was engaged in a heavy conversation uh, with her uh, w with her lawyer. You know, we're always talking about. Um, you know, the victims, understandably, uh, but 
a trial into the fifth week for a defendant, uh, your clients, uh, what's it like for them five weeks in? I know she's taking notes every day. Uh, she's seeing graphic testimony, uh, graphic photos, um, hearing graphic testimony, seeing graphic uh, photos. Um, do you think this trial is weighing on her or are people going to say to me she's a complete psychopath, sociopath, narcissist, and she's enjoying the limelight? And that was the dumbest question you could ask. Is that what I'm <laughs> no, no. I, you know, I think it's a fair question to ask. I mean, I think, I think, you know, innocent until proven guilty. We all have our opinions on where, uh, where uh, Lori Vallow is and what she's done. Certainly. Um, you know, I, I, I don't do criminal defense work, but as a prosecutor, like even sitting in the room as a former prosecutor, you could see that, you know, long trials take a toll on everybody. It takes a toll on the prosecutors. It takes a toll on the witnesses, uh, the victims, even the defendant. And, um, you know, I think it's a little bit more complicated with Lori Vallow because, you know, when we've speculated a little bit and we certainly uh, know that she's had some mental health issues in the past about how exactly this is affecting her. Um, you know, long days in the courtroom are not particularly fun. And, you know, um, being uh, uh, sitting there and having to look at unpleasant photos and gruesome photos and having people talk about you, most of us would not find a pleasant experience at all. And that would weigh on us and be extremely stressful. Uh, at the same time, you know, some of her behavior in the courtroom is just really bizarre. Um, you know, we've seen her laugh at times. We've seen her uh, seemingly not take things as seriously as some of us would like. Uh, and so hard to say exactly how much of it is hitting home for her, how much of that stress and burden that she's carrying. But I wouldn't say I feel pretty confident in saying that there is an effect. I just don't know the extent of that effect on her. Uh, Karen saying hello, Scotland and Spain. We've got some viewers from both of uh, those lovely nations. Um, Dave, back to you. So this was, uh, you know, arguably the biggest quote unquote bombshell moment of the trial when we hear about this hair found on the plastic bag duct tape uh, that was encasing uh, JJ, the young child. Uh, the DNA expert, DNA expert said, uh, the DNA profile matched uh, the DNA profile, the partial DNA profile matched the DNA profile provided from Lori Vallow Daybell. The probability of randomly selecting a random individual in relation to that profile is one in 71 billion. Um, what kind of impact is that on the jurors or is it a case where, look, hair sheds and uh, it just may have happened to have shed onto a plastic bag containing JJ? Well, we don't know exactly where the defense is going to go yet, but I hearken back to the original opening statements where you heard two very different views of what was going on in Lori Vallow's life. Uh, the prosecutor said this case was all about sex and power and money. Uh, the defense, which could have reserved its opening statement, to tailor it a little bit to facts like the one you just mentioned uh, and give some explanation of that. Instead, opened at the outset and said that this is about Lori Vallow, a loving mother to her children. So obviously, these are body blows to the defense uh, when something like a single hair shows up in a death site. Uh, it's pretty tough to sell loving mother. Uh, there may well be some explanation that can be tailored here. Uh, there may well be somebody who will talk to us about uh, 
what Alex did or didn't do in the back room at Lori's house uh, in grabbing this, that, or the other piece of utility for some purpose unrelated uh, to the death of these children. Uh, but we're still looking so far for the defense's loving mother to these children, and that hair doesn't help much. Um, Tari, you have the unfortunate um, distinction of being the only woman on the panel, so I have to ask you this question from Carrie G. Wonder how, <laughs> wonder how Mother's Day is going to hit LVD this year. Obviously not a legal question. Do you think it's even going to cross her mind, or is she just such a sociopath, psychopath, narcissist? All those phrase uh, labels seem to all intersect with each other. Do you think she's uh, going to have a moment of remorse? Uh, just your own thoughts on this. I mean, I, I obviously don't have a uh, any sort of psychology background in my <laughs> in my uh, history, but I I would have a hard time thinking that she's going to feel anything about this. I mean, it's such a heinous crime, and you know, and the way that she's reacted in the courtroom. Uh, during some of, I think, the most um, sad testimony about these children and how they lost their lives. I, I have a hard time believing that, you know, she's going to really truly feel anything. I mean, perhaps just feeling like she's a victim or, but I, I even have a hard time with that. I really can't, can't imagine that she would sit there and, and be sad in any sort of way, any meaningful way. Uh, Dave, curious about your thoughts, even though you're not a, a mom. I know I don't think Tara is either, but uh, you're, a, you're a, a male, not a female. But your thoughts on this? Well, I think uh, she manifests a bit of her involvement with this thing, perhaps best by these atypical illustrations of emotion in the courtroom, uh, whether she is a mother who could not stand to stay in the courtroom when all of these most dreadful pictures of body parts and recovered uh, remains were being shown and she protested uh, for a half hour wishing to leave the courtroom or whether she's somebody who laughs at an inappropriate time in courtroom activities and is interacting in odd ways with her lawyers despite, I presume, their instructions not to show any emotion in the courtroom simply take your notes and keep your head down. Uh, it's hard to read her. Uh, I wouldn't speculate about uh, whether she'll even recognize Mother's Day this year. It doesn't seem to be particularly significant on her calendar, given the trial schedule she has five days a week. Hmm. Very well said. Um, Amy Marta, uh, Josh, to you, does Chad still have the opportunity to cut a deal and testify against Lori. Could that happen potentially in this very trial? Uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, the trial's not over. Uh, they, they can negotiate a plea with him at this point if they you know, if they were willing to take the death penalty off the table and they felt that was important enough and that was important enough to him to, to cooperate and they felt like their case needed that extra push. But I think this late in the game, it's highly unlikely of seeing that happen um, if he's even willing to uh, participate, cooperate uh, with the prosecution at all, which kind of leads me back to kind of thoughts we were having earlier about, um, you know, we, we still don't understand really what the ongoing relationship, if any, is between these two, if they if they still very much share the beliefs that they 
apparently had at one point, and if they still believe that this is all part of their grand purpose and the end of days and everything else. That's why I keep on saying that if, if she did take the stand, to me, that would all be because it's her decision because she feels this is really her, her you know, part of her destiny or something. And um, it, it, to Tara's point earlier that, you know, why are we not seeing more kind of discussion about Chad in all of this? Well, that's an excellent point. She could be saying that's off bounds. You guys go ahead and do your jobs, but we're not going to throw Chad under the under the bus here because I I um you know I still love him. I still believe in him. I still believe he's whatever kind of religious believing being that she thought that he was. Um, and though the the defense attorney maintains some control over strategy and legal tactics. If your client flat out says to you, this is this is a third rail issue and you are not to touch that, they kind of have to listen to that or, or the, the client's going to turn around and fire them and say, or or bring it up to the judge and say, we we don't have a cooperative relationship here and I want my uh, attorney dismissed and somebody else assigned to me. So I know I kind of gotten to the weeds from the what the question was originally, but it is, uh, I forget in fact what the question was originally, but it is just kind of funny to think about what is the behind the scenes of the relationship between these two? Is it still ongoing? Yeah, the question was, could Chad turn, uh, get right. some sort of plea deal right. and uh, testify at this trial? Um, Jennifer Castaldi, who is a Jersey girl, finally here. Tara is a rock star. And Josh, I've been following you as well. Welcome, David, to STS Nation. And then Andy School has my back here. Hello, STS Hoping all are having a nice Thursday. Don't forget to hit the like button. Joel's kids uh-huh. like it when we do. It gets the algorithm chugging. And uh, no reason, no better reason to have kids than for them to bring you a charger mid-podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, one of my kids snuck in here and did that. So uh, it is, it's finally paying dividends having children. So um, <laughs> there, was, there was some more drama in the courtroom today, Tara. Uh, Ian was on the stand. This is... Melanie's current husband, uh, Lori's nephew-in-law, Ian Pulowski, and uh, they wanted to play. So Ian marries Melanie, and this just goes to the strange, high strangeness of this entire case, but she, he marries her 10 days after they met in Las Vegas. And uh, shortly thereafter, this is when the kids are missing, the FBI um, basically sends him in with a wire to try to get information. Um, and so he's the recordings of uh, Ian speaking to the family and attorney Jim Archibald, the defense attorney uh, tells the judge that Ian Pulaski is a snitch. He uses that word in the courtroom and prosecutor Lindsay Blake barks back objecting to that. Uh, she said that he was simply trying to help the police locate Ballow's kids. Uh, uh, JJ, of course, and Ty Lee. Um, what kind of gamesmanship is it uh, for Archibald to go ahead and call the state's witness a snitch in front of the jurors? I mean, ineffective. You know, I, <laughs> I, uh, I think it's entirely ineffective. And he's been a little bombastic. He had a couple other quotes the last couple of days. I think he he um, pointed out and 
I can't remember right now. Someone else's testimony said that that's a bunch of, you know, crap that you just made up. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this guy doing? Um, we've all heard probably, or most of us has, have heard, you know, the phrase uh, snitches get stitches. And so, you know, it, it's an attempt to just say that this person is underhanded and shady and can't be trusted and so on and so forth. I, I Again, I, I don't think that it would be effective at all. I think you know, the objection by the prosecution was a good objection. I mean, that's inappropriate to make that sort of, um, you know, use that sort of statement. And I, I, quite frankly, I don't think that it helps their case. Um, you know, none, nobody on that jury is going to go, oh, okay, he's a snitch. So we're just not going to listen. We're going to disregard everything that he has to say. Uh, I think it was an attempt maybe to attack his credibility, but not a very good one. And I know Josh Ritter's looking at this question saying, do not ask me this, but this is the, this is Elf saying, did you guys see the interview with the woman who was in jail with Lori? I happened to catch that. So I can answer this. Um, she was in court. Um, just going to listen as a spectator. She was interviewed afterwards and as expected, it was a bizarre interview. Um, she seemed like a perfectly fine woman. She said that uh, Lori would play with uh, she would create sock puppets in jail and would have a puppet show with her sock puppets. And that was the extent of the interview. Um, but I happened to catch that. And um, what the relevance is there other than you're either really bored in jail or she's even more bizarre than we think. I'm not sure, but it's uh, one of those two things. But back to this guy, Ian, uh, who was on the stand today. He talks about the day that Alex Cox died. Uh, he says that he recorded the conversations uh, with Melanie Boudreaux for two weeks. Only he and the FBI knew about this. Um, and it was significant. Uh, uh, he said that the death of Alex was a very significant day for Melanie as it was uh, her uncle. Um, and then he's asked, basically, have you listened to these tapes? Uh, and he says, I've heard bits and pieces of them. I hadn't ever listened to them all the way through. Uh, my question to you, Dave, is when you've got these wiretaps, we're dealing with another case, the Dan Markell murder. Uh, he's an FSU law professor that was executed in his driveway, and uh, they have wiretap uh, conversations with the ex-brother-in-law and the ex-father-in-law and the ex-mother-in-law. Um, how effective are these types of wiretaps uh, in the courtroom when you're actually listening to people speak in real time. Well, you know, in defense of the defense, now that you've elaborated on it, somebody who wears a wire for two weeks uh, and tries to get their own family in detailed, compromising conversations about relevant material for the FBI sounds a bit like a snitch to me. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, the appellation was entirely undeserved, uh, as the council articulated it. Uh, obviously, uh, taped interviews, taped comments at critical moments between people who are uh, unaware that their material is being uh, recorded uh, can be very critical in proving intent, uh, proving action, foreshadowing something that may happen that can be better recorded. So those kinds of uh, streams of information are very useful in investigators and properly selected by prosecutors can be critical evidence. 
Uh, on the other hand, listening to two weeks of drivel about what's going on in the driveway is not very engaging for a jury. Andy School, friend of the show, seems like Lori is taking notes when things come up that Chad can use. Is there a way her lawyers or Chad is able to keep up with how her trial is going? I know for a fact, uh, Josh, that Chad does not have access uh, in his jail cell. As far as I was told, uh, he's not watching this trial. But um, if you're Chad Daybell's attorney, and he has been in the court uh, a lot, maybe not in the courtroom per se, but at least in the overflow room or the viewing room, um, if you're Chad Daybell's attorney, what are you doing right now uh, in preparation for a trial that he wants to be a year away? Well, he has been observing, right? I've heard reports that he's yeah. been in yeah. uh, maybe like a, a, a pour over room or something and watching some of this. Sure. Um, I think that's very important because, um, you know, it was pointed out earlier that every, every time a, a witness testifies, that's prior statements that you're going to be able to use to cross-examine that person. If they manage to say something even slightly different, that's something that, uh, you know, a, a, a skilled defense attorney can really try to exploit to their advantage. But a lot of times what defense attorneys are getting are simply just transcripts of the testimony of people. And it's, and it's hard to kind of understand and assess a witness just based off of, of a transcript because you're, you're just reading their words as it was written down by the uh, stenographer in court. Seeing how they perform on the stand is something else entirely and seeing how they hold up under pressure or seeing how well the jury responds or doesn't respond to them is all really important information for uh, a defense attorney. So he is getting kind of a sneak preview of how this is all going to play out. And he's probably, I imagine, taking notes on not just what's being said, but how people are doing, how they're performing how, how they answer certain questions that perhaps he would have asked on cross. Because now that you know how they're going to ask this question that one defense attorney has taken a shot at them with, perhaps they have a well-prepared answer to that. And he can go back in on his, his you know, you know this trial 2.0 and use a different tactic in trying to get that same sort of information. So I think it's all very valuable. I, I, I would imagine he would be there every day, if not somebody, some representative from his office taking copious notes of how everyone does. And he's uh, he's taken some flack because I know uh, at least on one occasion he came in in a T-shirt and people people said have a little more. But I think it was in fairness to him. I believe he was in the overflow room that day. Uh, Teresa writes, will Chad bargain to remove the death penalty? Uh, Dave Leroy, is that even a feasible option for him? Can he say, I'll give you information if you don't kill me, put me to death? Well, there are a lot of moving. Well, Dave's not moving. Tara? <laughs> <laughs> uh, potentially. Um, on I that kind of thing. Uh, the, the key. We got Dave are, we all, we are we all gone? Go for no, it, you're, you're there, Dave. You're there. Go ahead. Yeah. Good. I started to say there are a lot of moving parts in that kind of question. Often the major uh, equation is the cost of trial and emotion and money and time and uh, trouble for the jurisdiction and the prosecutors, uh, the victims' families versus uh, a, an assured outcome uh, at the outset at relatively little cost and uh, relatively swift decision making. Uh, in this case, uh, because of the horrific facts uh, of these children's deaths and because of the time and trouble the jurisdiction has been put to to bring this case to trial, 
the initial decision would be made if an overture is offered by the defense, by the prosecution, and the prosecution's principal touchstone then is the sense of the community, the opinions of the victims, the appropriateness of what might be deemed by people interested in the law and interested in society as justice in this case. It would be pretty hard sell, I presume, at this late date to convince these prosecutors to walk away from a potential death penalty case. They were very disappointed, I think, when they lost that opportunity to pursue this case as a death penalty case. But uh, as to as to the question, certainly uh, it could be offered by uh, the defense. It could be contemplated by the prosecution. Uh, my guess as a former prosecutor and an attorney general who supervised 44 prosecutors is that the state would not be particularly interested in this case in that overture. Uh, Carrie G, and this is why I love STS Nation, will Alex's death be further investigated? And Teresa answers it. Alex's death was re-examined already as naturally caused by blood clots. I don't know why I feel like that should be reinvestigated again, but uh, we'll see if that happens. Followed by KCL here, who is uh, following this case very closely. Uh, Melanie Pulaski has not been charged in Arizona because Arizona has dropped the ball, exclamation mark. Uh, she could be charged. I believe Arizona said they didn't have enough evidence of her involvement uh, to charge her, which not to say I told you, but I think I said that they probably didn't have enough evidence to charge her. So I guess that's where we are. But I think all these things are uh, potentially still moving parts. Uh, Beach Mom, of course, uh, everyone put all hearts for Tammy Daybell, uh, followed here by for your birthday, Tammy, I wish for justice. That would be a good uh, present. Um, too late for her, sadly, but it would be a good present nonetheless. Uh, Tara, I guess you're our resident psychologist tonight. So um, oh boy. Ian, was, Ian was on the stand and uh, said that Melanie was absolutely, again, the niece was distraught when Alex died. She was crying and felt like she had been attacked by spiritual demons. And here's a quote. She had been told by Chad and Lori that there was going to be a spiritual attack that day with Alex dying that confirmed it. How incriminating is this uh, to the jurors to hear this from a witness? Oh, I think, I mean, it certainly has a big impact, especially in a case like this that um, involves circumstantial evidence. I mean, I think um, it was, I can't remember if it was Dave or Josh, who mentioned this before, you know, in a case like this, they're brick by brick. The state is kind of laying the foundation for their ultimate conclusion here uh, that uh, Lori Vallow is guilty. So all of these little pieces of information that are being put together, including a statement like that, certainly um, goes into that uh that bucket, if you will, uh, about whether or not Lori is guilty and what her what her role here is. The fact that these folks are predicting that you know people are going to be dying around them, besides you know just being creepy, um, is you know it, it, it certainly tends to point to some type of involvement by them, some knowledge that they had that other people didn't have. Uh, so I think it all ties together. And uh, Dave Leroy, we know the court of public opinion can be strong. Karen M., some of the people involved in this are as slippery as eels and will never have to face justice. Praying 
for a car accident, especially knowing a child is uh, on board, signals real intent of the group. And this goes back to, uh, you know, Ian saying, uh, as I just asked Tara, uh, she told uh, she was told by Chad and Lori that there was going to be a spiritual attack that day. And then Alex dies. And then Ian says that Lori discussed beliefs about possession, about locking Satan away. Those are uh, the two that stand out the most. Uh, same question to you. I mean, how incriminating is this uh, to a jury of her peers hearing that she was predicting an attack and then suddenly the brother ends up dead, albeit by, you know, in her in her defense, natural causes. But it seems very peculiar at the, at the least. Well, I've been a little bit intrigued by the predictive nature of some of these foreshadowings or viewings. Uh, on one hand, you could argue that a prophet uh, is supposed to be able to foresee the future. And people of that uh, philosophy, if it is a righteous one and they are true followers, may get the benefit of that uh, prescience. On the other hand, uh, it obviously uh, can be argued, and it will be by the state, uh, that this is evidence of intended acts that were subsequently executed, literally in this case. Uh, I, uh, I think it is relatively insignificant as compared with the scientific evidence that's been amassed, but it's a bit of color that uh, adds some extra speculation to who knew what and when did they know it. And uh, Dave, I want to be deferential to you. I know that uh, you usually have to hop off at the top of the hour. So if you do, please feel free. If not, we'll probably go another 15 minutes if Tara and Josh will uh, allow me. But uh, Dave, it's your call. Thanks. I've got to sneak out for another obligation, but it's Thanks, always Mr. a pleasure to be on uh, with the prosecutor of the year <laughs> and the smartest girl in the room. <laughs> and uh, it's awesome to have the former lieutenant governor, the former attorney general of the great state of Idaho, and a great lawyer and a great guy. So thank you for joining us. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Um, Elf says, uh, Tara, thoughts on if the judge will stop the trial and declare Lori incompetent? Heard today that this is a possibility. Um, is there a chance that this could happen? Well, uh, I, I suppose anything is a possibility. There would have to be something that happened in front of the judge for the judge to kind of step in on his own and make that call. I, I don't I don't think I've ever seen that in particular. Maybe Josh has. But normally what happens is the um, defense attorney will make a motion uh, before the court, obviously outside the presence of the jury and raise an issue. And then we go through that same process that Lori has been uh, through before where, you know, it, it doesn't just stop. She goes, she gets treatment uh, and gets to a place where she's competent. Then we would in theory pick back up again um, if she was able to become competent. So um, yes, a possibility, but um, more of a possibility would be her attorneys making some sort of motion based on their interactions with her. Shout out to Stephanie Ella for giving us a super sticker, which is what I think that is. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for uh, the support all the time. Um, Josh, you're a prosecutor. So we're still on the prosecution's case. Why do people say this is going to end soon? Some people said it would be over as early as the end of this week. If the defense hasn't pre presented its case yet, it's not going to last a day. There's a chance the defense might not even last an hour because they might not bring a defense, correct? 
Yeah, I you know I've read reports saying that there's suspicion that they won't call witnesses. I know that the the we don't we don't have a witness list because it's uh, my understanding is it's under seal. Um, but you're right; it's it's kind of premature for us to say that oh the case is nearing an end when we don't know what the defense is going to do. Putting that aside, though, I think the reason why everybody fear uh, feels it's kind of nearing an end is that prosecution has done a fairly good job of kind of done doing this all in a linear fashion and that we're kind of going through the timeline events as they occurred. And now we're, we're at the point of, you know, them being in Hawaii and everything else and talking about things incident to that. I know that some witnesses have come out of order, but it does seem as though we've kind of reached that entire story arc and we're coming to a natural conclusion of the people's case. Um, and I think the other reason why people are suspicious about whether or not they're going to call anyone is that the defense really hasn't done a lot of foreshadowing of any of that in their cross-examination of witnesses. Um, they talked a little bit about what might be an affirmative defense in their opening statement. And by affirmative defense, I mean actually putting on a case rather than just kind of attacking the prosecution's case. But we could end up in a situation where you know, we just call it a reasonable doubt case where the the defense just gets up there and says, listen, we we told you this from Vaudier. We're telling you this now. The burden entirely rests upon the prosecution and we didn't have to prove one thing in court. And we didn't call any witnesses because we didn't need to because they didn't reach their burden. I'm not saying that argument will carry the day, but you do oftentimes see that. Uh, Roxanne A. Joel, uh, thanks for the clarification here. Melanie Pulowski was arrested. She cooperated with the police, and that is why she is not being charged. So that explanation uh, from Barbara, uh, I'm sorry, from Roxanne A. Um, and then this from Barbara Kern. Yesterday on the stand, Audrey testified that Lori and uh, Audrey's a former friend, I guess now of Lori, uh, that she watched someone take their last breath. I wonder who she was talking about, Charles, Tylee, JJ, someone else, or all of them. Uh, so there was, uh, again, high drama in the courtroom yesterday with Audrey Baratario testifying. She met Lori at a conference in 2018, and uh, they then reconnected in 2019. And uh, Tara, this is what Audrey said to Lori, according to Audrey. She said, you're so naive and too trusting. You're like a little child. Child, You think the world is all unicorns and rainbows. You go around helping people and serving them. Well, I've got news for you. Not everyone is a good person and not everyone can be so kind. And then she threatened to kill me. Um, a lot of people say that neither the state nor the defense knew that this was going to come out of her mouth. Um, Lawyering 101, you're supposed to know the answers to all your questions. What do you think uh, transpired here? Well, it, it was uh, it was certainly a piece of information that um, surprised, I think, a lot of people in that courtroom. Um, and in fact, the defense attorney jumped all over it. Uh, and on cross-examination, I believe he brought out and said, you know, this wasn't part of your uh, grand jury testimony. You've never, you know, you've never made that statement before. Uh, and I think this is the one that he, you know, he made a comment about, you know, this, this being crap, or, you know, you just made this crap up, something along those lines. Um, 
normally, you know, you, you go in and you know what people are, you have a good sense of what people are going to say based on prior testimony, based on the discovery that's been exchanged. But, you know, stuff comes out in trial. Um, people respond differently, you know, when they're under that pressure, when they're under oath. I've, I've certainly had my share, fair share of surprises on the stand. And you, uh, you try and prepare all of your witnesses and you really try and, and get out as much information as possible and details as possible ahead of time. But stuff does come out um, and surprise statements do come out. Now, this one is pretty significant. Uh, certainly doesn't look good for um, Lori to have made that comment or allegedly to have made that comment. Uh, but, you know, the defense's point is a fair point. Uh, such a significant statement or, or threat that was made. How come this is coming out for the first time uh, at trial? And uh, Josh, uh, Audrey went on to say that Lori said to her, uh, she would cut me up and wasn't in the mental place to do it, but would, her, but would get herself in a place to do it. There would be blood and bleach and something about trash bags. She would bury me in a place nobody would ever find me. Um, assuming this is not true, as far as I know, Judge Boyce, and, and people are debating whether it is or not, but Judge Boyce didn't strike it uh, from the record, as far as I know. Um, but even if he did, once something like this is uttered in a courtroom in front of jurors, can a juror just simply forget hearing this? Even if it was, even if they were ordered to, like I said, strike it from the record, can you really do that? No, you can't unring that bell once 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 jurors have heard that type of testimony. And in fact, there, there's an argument to be made that even if they had asked to have it stricken, it even calls more attention to it. It's just people's natural inclination that you you know don't look behind you now, and everybody looks behind themselves. Um, it, it, they're they're going to add even probably more significance to it than it than it warrants. Um, it, it it also just kind of as an aside is just if you heard the um the audio of this testimony she was incredibly emotional you can tell that she wasn't it, it wasn't this wasn't done in a joking manner she was very affected by the way these words were said to her and it just got me thinking that you know this this the amount of dead bodies surrounding this woman the amount of threats and bizarre statements she's made. I keep on thinking about the Murdoch family, about how it's, I've lived my whole life and I can't think of one bizarre, unexplained death that's taken place in, in my immediate circle. And these people have a trail of dead bodies behind them. And it's just, I think it all starts to add up to jurors. And though this evidence itself is not, you know, obviously not some sort of smoking gun evidence, it just further adds to kind of their understanding of who this woman was and answering that question, is this the type of woman who could take the lives of her two children? And I, I believe that that answer is becoming a, a resounding yes to the jurors at this point. I have to agree with you on that one. Uh, Melter Skelter, Tara, and we'll wrap it in just a few um, what would the average sentence be for two counts of conspiracy for the kids? It doesn't look like they have enough evidence for Tammy. We've obviously got the conspiracy charges and the murder charges. If she's not convicted on the murder charges, but just conspiracy, do you know, I know this is probably not a fair question, uh, cause you're not a judge and you don't do the sentencing, but, uh, could she still spend the rest of her, uh, life behind bars? Yeah. I mean, I, it, there, there's really no 
average sentence that you could, especially in a case like this, which is, I think, bizarre in so many ways, um, you know, the the uh, judge is the one is going to sentence her. Um, there's a whole different proceeding that happens for sentencing. Uh, she can put on any sort of mitigation or good character evidence or all sorts of things. I, I you know, if she is found guilty, whether, uh, you know, two charges or, or three, um, I would imagine it would be a very significant sentence. I mean, those each one of those counts is a significant crime. Uh, it has ruined a lot of people's lives. It's affected a lot of people. There are victims in this uh, case as well. And so, you know, I, I don't think that we could expect, you know, a, a short sentence for her. And I'm sure, um, you know, we'll, we'll hear a lot of stuff from her to try and get that sentence as short as possible. But I would be thinking a pretty significant time. Uh, Bavesh writes, uh, Josh, what if Chad drops everything on Lori? This goes back to an earlier conversation we had, uh, stating that most lives were lost uh, related to Lori and from her circle, and she could be responsible for his wife, too, due to her jealousy. Um, and then Mona chimes in and says, Chad can blame all he wants, but that still makes him complicit. I mean, if he does turn on uh, Lori in his trial or potentially even this trial, um, does that necessarily absolve him of what's coming his way? No, no, because I, I think we've seen in, even in her trial, a significant amount of evidence that connects him to it um, and would likely convince jurors of his involvement. And, and you're right. That's what we're talking about here is conspiracy. It doesn't mean everyone needs to have had their hands on the, the knife or, the, or the, the garbage bag in this case to have to be the one found guilty. But if they're all playing some role in the furtherance of it and they had an agreement beforehand, they're all going to be held equally responsible. And so I, I think the case against Chad, even in Lori's trial has shaped out to be fairly uh, significant that I imagine when the prosecution turns their full uh, focus and attention towards Chad, we'll even hear more about that. Um, Barbara Kern, uh, letting us all know that Nate Eaton, I guess East Idaho News, has already filed a motion to allow cameras in the courtroom for the verdict in Lori's case. Again, some people said that this trial uh, could be over as early as this week. Um, that doesn't appear to be happening. Uh, by the way, Tara, court ended a little early today, I guess, because they had to prepare for the hearing. But we're already being told that court will end tomorrow at noon Eastern time. What's going on here? What's going on with these judges? They don't like to work. Why, why these shortened days? Why are they not trying to get this trial done and over with? Oh, I think I think everyone wants to get the trial uh, done and over with. But you know, there's just some practical realities um, for judges and parties. I mean, it, it could be a number of different things. Um, judges have other uh, dockets that they also have to be in charge of in cases that demand attention, and um, certainly with a criminal docket, you've got. Uh, speedy trial rights for all sorts of defendants in cases. So um, that uh, is a factor. Um, you know, the, the parties may be requesting that time for a particular reason to get witnesses there or present. I mean, there's a number of factors that go into this. Um, I can tell you from my own personal experience that, uh, you know, generally um, 
judges are pretty good, especially in this state, about pushing these cases forward and not taking additional time that doesn't need or isn't necessary to be taken because they understand, uh, you know, we need to get through this. They are also very aware of the fact that these jurors are having to come in. And so any delay affects how long these jurors are sitting in there and away from work, away from their families, away from other responsibilities in their lives. So uh, I'm certain that, you know, if they're breaking at noon, there's probably a pretty good reason. Defending the legal world, as you should. <laughs> uh, back to you on this one, Tara, from Laura Waldy. Knowing uh, Lori Vallow's court behavior and the fact that she's been deemed incompetent twice while awaiting trial, what kind of facility would she go to uh, if convicted? Would it be a regular prison? I mean, um, there's no going back for her now, right? I mean, if she's convicted, she's going to the big house. There's no more psych hospital. She didn't want uh, her mental status, mental health status being brought into this case at all. Yeah. I mean, she would, if she's convicted, if she's, you know, competent all the way through trial and, and we get to the end of trial, we get to the sentencing. Yeah. She would be just going to prison. Um, you know, the prisons have resources, they've got doctors, they, you know, have access to uh, medical care if they need it. But um, that's, that would be her destiny if she's convicted in this case. He is uh, the former prosecutor of the year, Josh Ritter, named 2015 Outstanding Prosecutor of the Year by the Association of Deputy District Attorneys. He is a partner at El Dabe Ritter Trial Lawyers. And most importantly, for these purposes, he is the host of his podcast, True Crime Daily, The Sidebar, and uh, STS Nation is watching that now, so I love it. Uh, give Josh some props. Uh, Josh. Um, how does this all end? Let's put you on the spot. Will this be <laughs> a conviction on the conspiracy and the murder charges, a, an acquittal, a hung jury? What say you? I think we're going to see convictions, and I'm not even entirely basing all of that on the evidence that we've seen. What I'm basing that on is that you have enough evidence and you have incredibly sympathetic victims, incredibly unsympathetic defendant. Um, and I just think jurors are going to find a way, um, and I'm not saying that they're going to ignore the law and everything else, but I think that they're going to need very little convincing to find this person responsible for these horrible deaths because of how horrible they are and how horribly this mother uh, behaved after the disappearance and death of her children. So I, I would be shocked if we ended up with anything less than that. You heard it here. Uh, <laughs> Jill Schneider, LOL, that sock puppet interview was weird. Yes, it was. Followed by Marie Hernandez, sock puppets with the laughing, crying emojis. Followed by Raul Thomas. Did the sock puppets wear makeup? Uh, that was not asked, but... Uh, Maybe they did. I have no idea. Um, her name is Tara Malik, and she is a big friend of the show. She comes on here uh, frequently, and she'll be back on when we get to uh, Brian Koberger. She is a Boise, Idaho licensed attorney practicing in both state and federal court in business and commercial litigation. Uh, she has experience in both civil and criminal law, and uh, She's starting to get noticed by the court TVs and the news nations of the world. Soon she'll have a book and uh, she'll forget about us, but we won't, we won't forget about her. But uh, well. <laughs> Tara, um, 
put putting you on the spot as well. Conviction, hung jury, uh, acquittal. What are we What are we going to see here? Oh, conviction. I think for sure. I mean, especially the last couple of days with uh, some of the new information that's come out, evidence that's come out, Lori's hair, for instance, on the tape. Um, you know, I, I think that the prosecution has done a nice job so far of slowly building this case up. And uh, I think they probably have a couple uh, other uh, pieces of evidence up their sleeve that's going to come out in the in the following days. So I agree with Josh. I think you know, this is a very sympathetic victims, very unsympathetic uh, defendant uh, in this particular case. So I would expect a conviction here. Two convictions on the record. You heard it there. Uh, Dave Leroy, of course, uh, joined us as well. The former lieutenant governor and attorney general. Quick programming note. We're right back tomorrow, 1230 p.m. Eastern time for Great Scott. I have to point the finger. It is your true crime fill with former FBI Special Agent Scott Duffy and former Houston homicide detective Phil Waters. And Abby Taha here. Oh, by the way, and by the way, she wants Phil to adopt her. I'm wearing my STS t-shirt. The merch store is officially open uh, at all our links. Abby, you got to take a picture in that shirt and tag us on Insta at Surviving the Survivor, by the way. It's private, but I just found out my seven-year-old daughter makes about a hundred TikTok videos a day, and uh, I was blown away by it. She's a rap artist and a singer, and a little wild. So I had no idea until a night ago. Um, and she made the traveling soccer team. So there you go. I, I on yesterday's show, guys, I told uh, STS Nation that if she didn't make the traveling soccer team at age seven. She wasn't allowed back in the house, and she made it. She she breathed a sigh of relief after that. But uh, we will be back tomorrow. By the way, oh, someone asked, where is my mom? We did a podcast right before this with her here, and so I had to remove the cutout. But she's going right back. She's coming out of the closet, no pun intended, and she's going to be right back uh, behind me. And she will be on live Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We are working to do a show about the Menendez brothers, uh, that documentary is out. I believe that they have now uh, engaged Mark Garagos, the famous L.A. criminal defense attorney, and uh, they're looking to get a retrial or vacate their conviction. So we will discuss that Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Australia. Love you, Austria, Ireland. I promise those countries. Love you, L.A., where Josh is. And love you, of course, Boise, Idaho. Until next time. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. 
What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. 